The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. We're continuing the study of the book of 1 Kings, the portion about the prophet Elijah. 1 Kings 21, speaking tonight about the God who sees oppression. A pretty extensive scripture reading, but we want to read all of it. It's a narrative about Naboth's vineyard. Hear God's word. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he, that is Ahab, lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth curse God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, 
Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin." And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Most of us remember the vivid images from February of 2015, not long ago, The images of 21 Egyptian Christians dressed in orange jumpsuits being killed by the terrorist group ISIS on a beach in Libya. The video message from ISIS contained various phrases. One phrase was, a message signed with blood to the nation of the cross. The message went on to threaten similar treatment to all those who, quote, have been carrying the cross delusion for a long time. Oppression and sinful violence is really nothing new. It seems that we see a vivid demonstration of something like that every week in the news. But oppression and deep injustice have been, really, when you think of it, the constant condition of the nations and the civilizations of the world throughout the history of the world. And we know that The news that we see, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. For example, recent estimates are that there are 100 million street children in the world. It's so sad. You read about them, usually cast out of their homes, often because their mother has a new boyfriend, and often they sniff glue in the third world cities of the world to drown their sorrows. The wars in Iraq and Syria, you might know, have displaced and oppressed approximately 14 million children. Throughout history, people and people groups have been enslaved and oppressed. In our own nation, we grieve the oppression and violence to babies who are aborted in the womb. And we remember that November is National Adoption Month. What a great alternative. We could go on and on about inner-city children in our own nation and the suffering that they go through, or women who throughout history and even in our time in the news we see being victimized and oppressed, the rich oppressing the poor, even the first, probably the first New Testament book written, the book of James in chapter 5, describes the rich oppressing the poor and 
the Christians seeming to not be that aware of that in that day. From every corner of the world, from every time in history, the cry for justice goes up. And we ask, does the Bible speak meaningfully to this question? Does God hear? Does God see? And this narrative about Naboth and Ahab is a is a wonderful opportunity to understand something about the justice of God. I want to look at it under three points. Number one, evil desire at the heart of injustice. Evil desire at the heart of injustice. Number two, the God who sees injustice and responds. And number three, the readiness of God to show mercy. Those are our three points. First, evil desires at the heart of injustice. We see this at the beginning of chapter 21. Ahab wants this plot of land for a vegetable garden. Is that wrong to want? No, it's probably not wrong to want that, but clearly it is a desire that is ruling him and bringing forth terrible fruit. It's a desire that's totally out of proportion. Naboth, we find this godly man, refuses to sell. And he's not doing so just out of sentimentality, like, well, my grandparents own this land. I don't want to give it. In the Old Testament, there's a much stronger, compelling reason. If you look at Leviticus 25 and elsewhere, you find that the land was appointed to be given by God to the various tribes and within those tribes, and no one could permanently sell his land. It was part of the inheritance of the Lord. And so Naboth is refusing to sell out of obedience to the Lord. It is God's appointed inheritance to him. He is really serving and obeying God. But because he does so, a terrible course of events we see unfolding here. Jezebel, we find, finds her husband pouting and sullen It makes us almost laugh to think of the fact that the king, the great king who couldn't get a vegetable garden field, is lying on his bed, facing the wall, unable to eat in verse 4. And we just see the almost comical scene that Jezebel comes in and says, Why are you so upset? Why are you so vexed? Aren't you the king, she basically says. Can't you do something about this? I'll do something about it, she says. We know Jezebel would. She was the daughter of a Sidonian king, a pagan king. She doesn't know the God of the Bible at all. It's evident. She comes from a full-blown pagan worldview where the king simply crushed opposition and had no respect for any biblical principles of justice or equity. She was going to get her way and please her husband, this weak king in her mind. And so she comes up with this scheme under the veneer of legality And under the veneer of the worship of Yahweh, Jehovah, this scheme, she sends letters to the elders and leaders of Naboth's town. And we see that the leaders, God's people, the leaders of God's people are complicit with Jezebel, probably fearing for their own lives, but still not an excuse. They carry out her plan. She tells them to proclaim a fast, a religious fast, and have Naboth seated at the head of this assembly in some way and have these two worthless fellows we see in verses 9 and 10 uh, bear false witness against him, which they do, and accused him of blasphemy and, 
and of treason against the king, and then they stone him. And the whole narrative and the whole scheme drips with religious hypocrisy of the very worst kind. We find out later, by the way, in Second Kings 9, that Naboth's sons are stoned along with him, probably because the land would have passed on to them, so they had to be taken care of as well. Isn't this kind of thing, this kind of oppression, this kind of injustice, isn't this the kind of thing that is happening all the time in the world? Great examples of it, small examples of it, public examples of it, hidden examples of it. We think of things like the Spanish Inquisition, in the name of religion, people being killed. Or we think of the famous Bloody Mary in England, where so many of the Reformation martyrs were put to death in her short reign. Or even things like the lynchings of blacks in the South in the 20th century, all with a veneer of religiosity in some way. And the same with this illustration I began with, with Egyptian Christians being killed. Oppression arises from the Jezebel-like idolatries of the human heart. And as we think about this first point, about the roots of injustice, think about, just think of the application to you and to me. It's hard to kind of, you know, we think of Jezebel and Ahab and we think, well, they're out of our league. Boy, it's a good thing we're not like they are. But my point to you is that we have to guard our own hearts because really the root of this for Ahab was covetousness, wasn't it? He wanted something. Think of a couple applications briefly. First of all, abundance of possessions does not rid the heart of sinful desire. Think of Ahab and all that he had. He was the king. Wouldn't you think that the king had enough lands and vegetable gardens? And it wasn't like he was going to starve to death or anything. Don't we tend to think, I would be content if I just had this one more thing. I need this. I want this. Isn't that the way covetousness is, always grasping for more? And we know that the world around us just tells us covetousness is normal and natural and just give way to it. It's the way to live your life. That's what all the advertisements say. You can be poor and covetous. You can be rich and covetous. It doesn't matter your stage and your state in life or where in the world you're from. It's a temptation for all of us. It's interesting in Luke chapter 12, a man comes to Jesus and comes with, seems like a reasonable request, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus refuses to decide the case. And in the process of answering him, He puts his finger on the danger of covetousness. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Maybe the man had a legal case, but still, Jesus is warning him against the roots of covetousness in his heart. Here's another point of application about that. Covetousness is contrary to true contentment. Look at Ahab. He was not content. This one thing was held back from him, and he was, he was vexed in spirit. He was not eating. He was so upset with not getting what he wanted. How much are we like that? When the, our agenda for our lives is thwarted in some way, do we start to get grumbling and complaining with the loved ones around us? 
when our day is not going the way we would like and do we just get in a funk? That's kind of normal sin in America, isn't it? Normal people don't even think of that as sin, but the Bible says that when there's bad fruit, then there's a bad root. Did we see any thankfulness in Ahab? Obviously not, because covetousness and true contentment and thanks thankfulness do not coexist in our heart at the same time. And we may wrestle as Americans living in the West, what is a real need? You know, a lot of the things we want aren't really a, a clear need, but still, you know, we can pray about those things and uh, we should think about the way we even express those requests to God when Philippians 4 verse 6 says, don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. Certainly that's not what Ahab was doing. We're called to fight covetousness with true contentment in Jesus Christ and thanksgiving to him. And also we could say a third point of application briefly here is sins of the heart eventually show up in practice. And covetousness is a good example of that. In James 4, we see James asking the important question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. That's what Ahab did. Sins of the heart eventually show up in practice if they're allowed to grow and bear their ultimate fruit. And so Ahab's sin resulted in really robbery and murder. And in our society, we look around us and see the sins of the heart, of sinful desire, of hatred, of anger, of lust, bring forth a whole boatload of evil deeds and actions. And so for us to remember the place to begin to fight against sin is in the heart. And when we see bad fruit, to turn to the Lord in repentance and faith and to turn away from wrong desire, to repent of it and confess it to the Lord and ask him for strength to produce new desires in our hearts by the power of the Spirit to put on Christ-like desires and virtues. As Dr. Rogers preached this morning, what are we praying about? Are our prayers more and more and more reflective of the fact that we're abiding in Christ and his word is abiding in us. And so it's bringing forth the desires of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things were far from Ahab. And so we can apply this fact that evil desires, sinful desires are at the roots of injustice. The love of money, the love of pleasure, hatred, rage, delighting in hurting others and terrorizing others, all these things support and motivates oppression. And so it looks like this is done without anyone knowing in the case of Naboth. But Ahab failed to account for God. And that brings us to our second main point. The Lord is a God of justice. Verse 17, we see the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, go down to meet Ahab. Elijah is sent to Ahab 
at the very vineyard of Naboth. It's interesting that in 1 Kings 21, Naboth's name shows up 19 times. Naboth is not forgotten by God. 19 times. And throughout the chapter, it's still called Naboth's vineyard. You never hear it at the end being called Ahab's vineyard. It's a very parallel case to Uriah and David who sinned against Uriah. When you think about the Bible referring to Bathsheba, even later in David's wife, Bathsheba is referred to in the Bible as the wife of Uriah. Interesting. The world may forget the Naboths, and the world may forget Uriah, but the Lord knows them. Precious in the Lord's sight is the death of his saints. Our God is not blind to injustice. Our God is not deaf to injustice. He sees, he hears, he knows. And the timing here in verse 20 of Ahab being confronting confronted by Elijah, is exquisite. Imagine Ahab finally and all excited going down to check out his new plot of land. You know, it's like getting a new car and let's give it a ride here. And Naboth gets there and he's thinking, let's see, I'll put the squash there and, you know, I'll put the lima beans over there. And just then, who shows up? It's Elijah. He's standing there waiting for Ahab Look at what Ahab says. Have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. (sighs) Can you imagine Ahab's heart falling? Elijah is saying to him, your sin, it's known by God. You, you, You caused Naboth's land to be sold to you in a sense, but you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And Ahab is called to account. And notice here, he in verse 19, uh, Ahab is accused of killing Naboth. Have you killed and also taken possession? Even though Ahab might have pled innocence, like he didn't really know what Jezebel was up to. No, he's held account. He's responsible for this. He is complicit. And really, a truly frightening prophecy unfolds. I won't go through all of it here, but look, in verse 21, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. This is not fulfilled by Ahab literally being burned by fire, but no doubt it's related to the fact that God is a consuming fire and Ahab and Elijah, it had not, not been that long ago that Ahab and Elijah had been up on the mountain and fire from God had fallen from heaven as a sign that God heard Elijah's prayer. Certainly that was still fresh in their minds in some way. Elijah is saying the Lord will burn you up with judgment in a sense. And there's further prophecy about all of his heirs being destroyed, and all of this is fulfilled. God is a God of justice, and he is not to be trifled with. He has bound himself to the cause of the weak. He has bound himself to the cause 
of the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and uh, raw fear of God, we might say, will not save you, but Ahab was brought to face the dread and terror of the judgment of God. And certainly, at the time, there were people secretly grieving over Naboth. We imagine extended family and relatives, uh, friends probably wept over Naboth and his sons and their death. But isn't this kind of oppression happening all over the world? We look and we look out and see the unchecked power of evil, it seems, again and again. You know, the recent shooting of a week or two ago. And time and time again, it seems that the wicked trample on the weakest, on the elderly, on children, on the impoverished, on the ones who have no voice, on on people sitting in church pews seeking to worship God, and there they are, defenseless, on the unborn. Even we in the West, with all of our advances, there is oppression on every side, And there is this cry that comes up again and again, this cry for justice. Well, just stop and think about that biblical truth. Your inner sense of justice, which is innately in each one of our hearts and minds, is a testimony to the existence of God and that God is a God of truth and justice. That sense, that longing for justice in every human heart testifies that we are created by God in the image of God, yes, marred by the fall, but created with a sense of justice. And Scripture tells us that justice will ultimately be done. The Bible tells us that. There is coming a judgment day. And sin and injustice will not have the last word. But we notice that God doesn't typically intervene immediately. God didn't save Naboth and his sons. He didn't save their lives. And we think of other examples. We think of John the Baptist being unjustly put to death by Herod after this festival, this feast, and this daughter dancing. We think of Stephen stoned to death unjustly. God's justice is very often delayed God allows injustice for a time, and there is much that is hidden from us as to God's purposes and as to God's reasons for why we don't see justice immediately so that the people of God, the saints of God, often cry out as we see them in the book of Revelation, the saints under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our deaths? But notice the implication from our text that Ahab is confronted at just the right moment by Elijah, just when he's supposed to be confronted. And he reminds us of what Jesus says in Luke 18 when he's talking about the parable of their persistent widow. And he closes that parable with this sentence, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now that's in God's timetable, isn't it? Doesn't often seem like it's speedy to us. But Jesus assures us that justice 
will be done. Romans 12:19, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then Paul goes on to say that so we can love our enemies because we don't have to take vengeance. We can leave that to our God. Or what a great example of God's seeing and hearing is Psalm 10. Take some time this week and look at Psalm 10. In the middle of that psalm, the first half of it is about oppression in this world. And that first half ends with verses 10 and 11. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might, by the oppressor's might. The oppressor says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. But the psalm doesn't end there. The oppressor thinks, God doesn't see this. Why? Because lightning doesn't strike him immediately down. Because justice doesn't come immediately. But the rest of the psalm is a description of God arising, a plea for God to arise. And it concludes with this idea, verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. It's a psalm that's really a study in victimization, but the fact that God breaks the arm of the one who victimizes someone else, ultimately, God sees, God hears the blood of all the Naboths crying from the ground, and God's holy and erring justice piercing even to the thoughts and intentions of the heart will ultimately come to bear. Isn't that a great comfort for the oppressed people of God? It's also a great terror and a dread to the oppressor, to the one not in Christ. And I would say to you tonight, if you know that you are not right with God through Jesus Christ, just this declaration of judgment that Elijah gives to Ahab should cause you to pause. If you have never come to Jesus Christ, uh, certainly even if we have never committed such a terrible deed as Ahab or Jezebel, and I doubt anyone in this room has ever done anything like that, yet do you see how the wrong desires of our hearts bring us under the judgment of God? And we know that we sin in thought and word and deed. Flee to Jesus Christ. Find comfort and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But let me come to our last point, the readiness of God to show mercy. This isn't the main theme of the text, but it comes out here in this interesting side note in verses 25 and 26. We find there that there was never anyone as evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. And yet, in verses 27 to 29, we find that Ahab repents, or at least has remorse. Ahab heard those words. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. That's like a real rough cloth, like burlap. A king would wear the most comfortable clothes you've got. He put on sackcloth. He fasted. This time it was true fasting, in some sense, under the Lord, not just pining away, and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Here's a different picture of Ahab. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Ahab 
is one of the most wicked people in the Bible, and yet he humbles himself here. And there's debate among scholars, among Bible commentators, is this true repentance? Some say yes. I take the school of thought that it's not true conversion and true repentance. It's real remorse, but it's only a temporary thing. And by next, the next chapter, we see Ahab really scorning the prophet Micaiah and putting him in jail, imprisoning him with uh, bread and water, so to speak. And probably it's more a remorse out of fear of punishment than genuine repentance, but still, to some degree, at least it's something. And God delays punishment because of Ahab's turning here. It shows God is ready to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. God is a God of compassion. Interesting that he says to Elijah, it's kind of like at the beginning of the book of Job, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? It's such an interesting text. What about you? Ahab soon dies after this, and the judgment of God falls upon his extended house. And there is another one in addition to Naboth whose blood cries out, And it's really very good news because it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cries out for mercy to all those who will trust in him. Jesus Christ was falsely accused. Jesus Christ was put before a kangaroo court that didn't do justice. Jesus Christ was put to death outside the city as a common criminal. But we know that Jesus Christ rose victoriously and vindicated his work of dying for us that we might live in Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in one much greater than Naboth, whose blood covers our sins? What a blessed, merciful God we have, not only a God of justice, but a God of mercy as well. You know, after the 21 Egyptians were put to death in 2015, the church around the world, I think, prayed earnestly for the persecuted. We've just had the time of the year that we've prayed for the persecuted church, and and we continue to so pray today that God's final justice will one day fall on all the persecutors, on all the oppressors of the world, but we also pray and we know that now is still the day of salvation And so let us pray earnestly that God would show mercy to the Ahabs of this world, or we could say to the Sauls of this world, thinking about the Apostle Paul that persecute the church, and by his grace that God would turn them into Pauls, the Apostle Paul we think of. And as we contemplate this final point of the redeeming mercy of God in Jesus Christ, listen to how one person put it in an email to World Magazine at the time of that February 2015 incident. This is the quote, May we never stop praying for the persecuted church to be strengthened in Christ's love and those who persecute the church to be overwhelmed by Christ's love. I like that. For the persecuted church, for the oppressed to be strengthened in Christ's love 
and for the oppressors, for the persecutors, for them to be overwhelmed and converted and brought to faith in Jesus Christ by Christ's love. May you truly rest in, trust in, rejoice in, take comfort in both God's justice and in God's amazing mercy in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that we would be encouraged by it as we seek you, as we seek to walk with you, as we seek to know you, as we seek to make you known this week. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.